Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As we begin to wrap up 2023, we are looking ahead to 2024, the year ahead which the UBS Chief Investment Office has characterized as the new world. So joining me here today in studio is Jason Dreho. Jason is going to dive into the new world, what that looks like, and what it means for your investment portfolio. So with that, Jason, it's great to be with you today here in person. Thank you for dropping by and looking forward to our conversation. It's good to be here, Dan, in person. Absolutely. So, uh, Jason, I know the Chief Investment Office has characterized the year ahead as a new world. So unpacking this a bit, this does acknowledge the reverberating economic and political after effects of the global pandemic years after its onset. Now, from CIO's vantage point, Jason, what elements, factors have come together to remake the geopolitical sphere, in turn resulting in this new world? Well, let's just start with the economic piece of this. We go back almost a few years to think about what happened during the pandemic, where governments basically shut down economic activity to deal with the pandemic, and then restarted it, especially in the U.S., and with a tremendous amount of stimulation. Uh, and now we've dealt for the past couple of years with the consequences of, of higher interest rates, higher inflation, still actually quite high growth, mm-hmm. um, but then you know now lingering concerns about large deficits. So that's a not just a U.S. story, you're seeing that in you know, other parts of certainly the developed world. So the economic environment uh, has changed. We've seen you know uh, kind of stress in the labor market, certainly during the pandemic. But even now, labor demand is high, but it's kind of creating sort of you know imbalances that are slowly being resolved but could linger within the labor market. So that's kind of one change, which matters from a kind of global perspective because every country is now dealing with consequences where, you know, Domestic political considerations could lead to unhappy voters. So that's one element. Uh, the second thing is, from a more of a geopolitical perspective, we you know, have wars in oil-producing regions, you know, with Russia invading Ukraine. Now the, uh, you know, the war with, between you know, uh, Israel, Israel and, and Hamas, Hamas yep. that could, could escalate to, uh, you know, into that part of the, the rest of the Middle East and cause you know, some stresses there. We have China that is sort of maturing. Uh, that's coming out of the pandemic in a way that looks a little weaker than it uh, went in, mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of uh, slowing growth, you know, aging population, a property sector that uh, had issues and concerns about a bubble before it, that's still kind of lingering in, in kind of that sphere. Uh, and continued you know, tensions between the U.S. and China in terms of uh, you know, trade policy, but even geared more towards security, technology, things of that sort. And then, you know, the rise of sort of like national industrial policies, environmental policies, certainly in the U.S. with the passage of the IRA Act, uh, you know, sort of this deglobalization, reshoring component to all this, the green energy transition that is, again, global nature. Uh, you know, and as we, uh, you know, just, you know, this week, President Biden mm-hmm. and President Xi from uh, you know, China were meeting, and one of the you know, news coming out beforehand was sort of agreeing on, you know, environmental and climate kind of related matters. Mm-hmm. So all these things kind of shape that, a challenging macroeconomic environment, you know, wars going on, different geopolitical considerations. It creates sort of a geopolitical sphere, that's what we kind of call it, uh, 
that will impact a lot of what goes on in the world. And as a result, a lot of it would impact you know, financial markets. So there's a lot there with that backdrop in mind, Jason. Maybe we can dig a bit deeper into the economic landscape, what this all means for economic growth in 2024. And you spoke about a lot of global considerations. So not only in terms of the U.S., but I'm curious to hear about your expectations for growth abroad as well. A lot of questions as to whether and when a recession might occur. So what can you share with us there? Well, starting with the U.S., you know, our view for a while has been sort of a soft-ish landing uh, for the economy. So that's still what we assume for 2024. After what's been very robust and unexpectedly strong growth in 2023, we do think the U.S. economy will slow down you know, next year. Not dramatically so, but there will be kind of a contraction of, of economic activity as consumers just continue to face sort of you know, mounting headwinds and, and the impact of higher interest rates just bit by bit kind of further squeezing, certainly at the margins, some consumers that will help us kind of slow the economy. The same thing will kind of squeeze in some businesses. But this is a slowdown, not a significant contraction. If we turn uh, to Europe, uh, growth has been, you know, subdued. It's already perhaps, you know, in a recession, at least a technical recession mm-hmm. across, uh, you, know, you know, Europe and Germany uh, and the UK. Uh, we think that's likely to you know, stay the case. Uh, you know, consumer incomes should start to kind of bounce back there as inflation comes down. And what we are seeing sort of in real time is inflation measures uh, in the UK and Germany, elsewhere in Europe, are falling rapidly, uh, sort of like what we've seen in, in the US, kind of really kind of catching up there, reflecting the slower activity. The benefit ultimately is that, uh, you know, real incomes start to kind of recover, and that will kind of bode well eventually for the recovery in Europe. But it's more of a, uh, let's call it almost like a slightly L-shaped, you know, they've kind of mm-hmm. slowed, very kind of gradual recovery. So not a big improvement in in much of Europe next year. Uh, if we go to China, uh, you know, we expect it to kind of grow modestly, 4.5%. Uh, so kind of similar to this year, but no real kind of acceleration, uh, you know, with muted consumption. Demand from abroad is, is slow. Foreign investment uh, into China is definitely kind of slowed, and that's probably not likely to reverse, you know, you know, at least quickly. And just the challenges of the property sector uh, will continue to sort of, you know, weigh on growth. So I think the overall global picture is, you know, this in 2024 versus 23. Moderation, a lot because of, of the U.S., uh, other parts of the world may not get worse, but probably not necessarily a whole lot better. Now, I think what will will probably happen is more of the first half of the year is some of the drags of of policy tightening in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, Europe slowing down kind of play out. By the end of 24, though, things could start to kind of be inflecting kind of more clearly higher. But overall story is uh, slower growth uh, for the U.S., at least. Uh, slower growth, but not a contraction. So I want to run a bit further with monetary policy. It's interesting. A year ago, we had a similar year ahead conversation at that time. There were concerns that over tightening by the Fed might inadvertently trigger a recession in the U.S. in 2023. Played out a bit differently, though here we are. I know we have one more meeting. We're recording today here on November 15th, so we still have the December Fed meeting to get through, though. What are your expectations, Jason, for monetary policy in the year ahead? Head. A lot of questions as to whether and when might we see the Fed beginning to cut rates as well. Well, one thing we can say, I think now with pretty good confidence, is that the Fed is done hiking. Uh, the October inflation prints for both CPI and PPI were below expectations. Uh, and if you then kind of look through you know, a jump in September, what we see is a kind of a clear downward trend. And other leading indicators suggest this will continue to decline. So if the Fed was not going to hike or didn't hike on November 1st, with other evidence of the economy slowing, I think the case for them to hike in December is is even uh, lower. Uh, therefore, I think they're done. 
And it seems very, very unlikely that inflation would accelerate in any substantial way in 2024, given the growth outlook we've just described. So if the Fed is done, the focus then becomes, you know, when will they cut? Uh, Our view is right now, you know, they'll cut 50 basis points starting with the July meeting. Uh, So they'll continue to make sure that inflation is down you know, at a level they're comfortable with, and they have confidence that it won't reaccelerate if they you know, start cutting you know, rates at all. Uh, and given the current momentum of the economy uh, and our view that it, it'll be slow down, not contraction, you know, it's probably going to take at least a, a couple of quarters to get data that, that really gives confidence that core inflation is trending uh, below 3%, if not already there by sort of the, you know, the middle of the year. Uh, if inflation does fall very rapidly, it does create a possibility that the Fed would almost want to start to cut a little bit to keep policy from getting more restrictive, not just because they're cutting because growth falls off. So there is, I think, now sort of two scenarios of why they would want to cut. Growth is weak, uh, but also inflation is coming down enough that they can sort of risk manage their, their interest rate policy going uh, you know, lower. But overall story for the Fed is uh, probably sitting on the sidelines for the first half of the year, seeing how things kind of cool down before they actually feel comfortable enough to, to cut. But that's that'll be the focus next year is when do they cut and mm-hmm. um, yeah, that could sort of expectations that, that could change, you know, monthly depending on how the data comes right. in. No, we'll follow that very closely. I have to, of course, acknowledge how 2024 is an election year here in the U.S., so you have to factor in any headline risk around that. How might these factors, Jason, drive markets and investor sentiment throughout the year? Well, we touched on monetary policy, and the takeaway there is probably stay restrictive for a while before it starts to get easier. Mm-hmm. On the fiscal side. Uh, yeah, I think the most immediate thing that we will be facing in 2024 is that the uh, deal done to fund the government through year-end and early next year, that expires in basically kind of in mid-later uh, you know, January with a little bit of another piece in February. So pretty close out of the gate. The question again will become, you know, well, is there a risk of a government shutdown? It's like a Groundhog Day conversation. It's We all love this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is also something where I think the risk of a shutdown there is going to be greater because no, I, mean, I think no elected official wants to shut the government down a week before mm-hmm. Thanksgiving uh, or going into the holiday season. But in mid-January, late January, I think there'd be sort of more willingness politically to, mm-hmm. to, do, to do something then. So I think right out of the gates, that will become an issue. What we know from an election or what we you know, can kind of just judge by polling, it looks like you know, President Biden will be the Democratic nominee. Mm-hmm. Former President Trump will be the, the Repo- Republican nominee. Mm-hmm. We'll see, you know, things could change, obviously, uh, but that, assuming that's the case, um, you know, the, the, the polling is kind of a toss-up at this point in time. We think ultimately it's probably going to be a divided Congress, so it won't, as of right now, we wouldn't bet on either a blue wave or a red wave, which means potentially kind of further gridlock, which from a market's perspective isn't necessarily bad because at least then they don't have to worry about will a policy be passed or not. It doesn't necessarily mean a good thing in dealing with some of the fiscal problems the country faces, but you know, kind of keeping that in mind. I think it will, as the, as the situation evolves, as polling changes, economic conditions change, the likely outcomes change, that could have a market impact. But I think what's most important for investors to know is that on average in election years, the S&P 500 is up 13%. Uh, if you exclude 2008 when the financial crisis happened and the stock market was ended up being down a lot, which you know wasn't kind of tied to the election year you know at all, so which is better than the 10% kind of average in general. Uh, so you should think about ultimately what is driving the markets. That's the economic outlook. That's the monetary policy outlook more so than the fiscal. And generally speaking, the stock markets have a pretty good run in election years. So just keep the kind of the your own personal politics out of deciding what you should do for your portfolio, because then you know you can let your emotions 
get the best of you. And what will inevitably be, again, a hotly you know debated, contested, mm-hmm. and, and potentially contentious election campaign, and hopefully you know not, but you know possibly you know election result as well. And of course, we'll point our listeners, our clients to CIO's Election Watch publication series, which will keep us informed on the progress of this election season. So, Jason, before we wrap up, maybe we can end on positioning for the year ahead. I'll simply ask, how should investors invest in 2024? Well, we are entering the year, um, you know, with the kind of the, the broad recommendations that where bonds are our most preferred asset class, we like them more than equities. And just looking at the returns that we'd expect over the next 12 months from current levels, we see higher returns, certainly higher returns when you adjust for the amount of risk in high quality bonds versus equities. That could change, you know, certainly over the course of events in the coming months. But as we enter the year, that's kind of how we are kind of positioned. In terms of then of key messages, I'd kind of flag three. One is to manage liquidity. This has been a key message we've had for a number of months. It goes back to the Fed possibly cutting rates. People or investors and their clients have felt very comfortable sitting on a lot of cash or kind of cash equivalents uh, because they can be getting 5.5% without having to do anything. In a world where the Fed's going to be cutting next year, uh, let's assume, then you know, when they have to reinvest, they're going to be reinvesting at lower rates. So to be able to lock in uh, and sort of manage that liquidity transition, that's going to be important. So some of the ideas, it's, you know, including like looking at sort of bond ladders for shorter maturities, structured solutions to kind of lock in those rates, even that kind of fixed term deposits, just to make sure that you can manage that that overall. Because you know, that will be, I think, a key story for next year. Another key message is to buy quality. For a while, we've had buy quality bonds is one of our key messages in focus. This is now kind of just broadly buy quality kind of bonds and stocks. Uh, while we don't expect and are not forecasting a recession, we do think there will be a slowdown. There are certainly concerns in the markets and how they've been trading really for, for much of this year is kind of on you know the view that the U.S. economy is light cycle. A recession may not be imminent, but it's also not early cycle. And therefore, typically, you don't want to own the most economically sensitive things if a recession you know could be coming six months down the line. Instead, a better you know uh, opportunity, I think it's like quality bonds, but also kind of quality equities, things that mm-hmm. uh, you know have consistent cash flows, high returns on capital, uh, ability to kind of withstand what could be a, a, still a challenging slowdown kind of environment for for the economy overall. So kind of buy quality. And the third is to think about just hedging market risks. We began by talking about the changing geopolitical sphere, you know from you know economic environment that is a little bit different than we've experienced. Uh, military conflicts, um, other kind of potential risks. So trying to hedge them in different ways beyond having a kind of diversified kind of portfolio, but things that could you know, do well in those environments, like you know, gold as a, as a safe haven could benefit. Uh, oil or energy stocks is kind of a hedge against Middle East uh, situation and mm-hmm. escalating causing oil price disruption. Thinking about just a kind of more defensive-oriented structured investments to kind of, again, sort of, you know, limit downside. You might sacrifice some upside, but again, to kind of, you know, protect you against those scenarios. If, if if the economy does fall into recession, the 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 Fed could cut a lot, so the yield curve could actually steepen, go positive and positive significantly. So in in sort of thinking about a duration adjustment to your portfolio, sort of positioning for a steeper yield curve, a little more complicated, but again, it's sort of a, a bit of a hedge to to think about um, you know, hedging these different types of risks. Sure. So it really comes down to manage liquidity because the Fed's done, mm-hmm. kind of buy quality assets in an, kind of an economic environment that is going to slow. Uh, and then sort of help to try and manage those risks in your portfolio. 
Jason, thank you for dropping by top of the morning to outline CIO's expectations for the year ahead. We will indeed continue to monitor the market, the macro, the political landscape, and keep our listeners informed along the way. So thank you again, Jason. You're welcome, and have a good 2024. The year-ahead report from the UBS Chief Investment Office titled The New World is now available up on UBS.com slash CIO for clients of UBS. Please be sure to reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the publication directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.